You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, 21 through 24. We are concluding today our study through the book of Ephesians that has kept us occupied for all of this year. Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our inquisitive and sinful nature loves to snoop, right? To get privileged information that we don't have the right to access. We have no right to possess. Such is the heart of the gossip who loves all the little details that we can glean out of our own vain curiosity. And one of the the few actions that are still considered a sin in our culture is snooping around the messages of someone's phone without their permission. What a sin in our world today. And so while it's taboo for me to perhaps take your phone and start reading your emails or your text messages, one of the joys of being a historian is getting to read the letters of the dead. And so before text messages and FaceTime, people used to write these things called letters to one another. And within those letters, we can see the the character of some of these wonderful people throughout church history. I have by my bedside a collection of letters from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh pastor of the 20th century. Uh, And I have his letters that he wrote to his family, to other pastors, to friends. I also have some, uh, a book there, uh, some, a lady in the church gave to me a while back of the letters of John Newton. And those letters that John Newton wrote to his unbelieving brother are particularly moving. And one of the best summations that Jonathan Edwards ever wrote about the Christian life was actually a letter he wrote to a young woman named Deborah Hathaway, who was asking Edwards, now that she was a believer, what should she do now that she's a Christian? So reading old letters of faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord from the past, it has a way of really encouraging our souls. So no wonder then that God in his providence would have it be that the New Testament is mostly a collection of letters written by apostles to local churches. Like all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, Ephesians is a letter. It's a letter. At times, I think we can forget this when we read the New Testament. As we open Romans, we aren't reading a theological treaty, but it's actually a missionary support letter. And in parsing 1 Corinthians, 
We aren't reading some ecclesiology textbook on the doctrine of the church, but we're reading a pastoral intervention to help aid a congregation being wrecked apart by division. And as we peruse through 2 Timothy, we aren't reading some sort of religious pastoral self-help book, but we're reading a personal goodbye from a spiritual father to his spiritual son. So we have to remember that when we are reading these letters in the New Testament, they are personal, they are affectionate, they are pastoral, and they're being applied to specific situations of an actual, real first century congregation. And by the superintending of work of the Holy Spirit, they have been preserved for us as part of God's canon, God's word, his inerrant and infallible word. So when we read Paul's letters, we can quickly sort of gloss over the opening greeting and we can kind of stop short before we read the final goodbye, chalking them up. Well, this is sort of irrelevant information and it's got a lot of names I can't pronounce, so let me just skip it. But with these letters that we have in the New Testament, we can receive, particularly in those opening words and particularly those concluding greetings, we can receive a fascinating look of what life together in Christ across churches looks like in the first century. So as we conclude today our study of Ephesians, we're going to look carefully at what we can learn from Paul's concluding greetings to the church at Ephesus. Throughout Ephesians, Paul has taught us and he's highlighted how the gospel has united us together in Christ Jesus. And unity is an expression uh, of Christian love. It's expressed by Christian love. And so from Paul's concluding letter, remarks to the, in this letter, we're going to see that we must love other churches first. Second, we must love one another. And third, we must love the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk firstly about loving other churches. So Paul's final greetings in Ephesians is some of his most generic in all of his letters. Unlike the end of Romans, where Paul gives extensive direct greetings to specific individuals in Rome, uh, Ephesians reads a little bit more generically. Perhaps this is a result of the circular nature of the letter, indicating that Paul intended this letter to go to many churches in the Asia Minor region. But most likely, Paul doesn't give a ton of detail because the deliverer of the letter, Tychicus, will provide personal updates and greetings in person. As Paul talks about here in verse 21, look at what he says. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So Paul's saving his cramped hand at this point as he's writing the letter, and he's going to rely on Tychicus to relay all the information about how he's doing and his ministry and his greetings and his lows. Tychicus was an unsung hero in the first century church. He may be one of the most important leaders that you know next to nothing about. Indeed, we don't know very much about Tychicus, but he appears frequently in the New Testament and plays a massive role uh, as a leader in the church and as a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 with Trophimus. Uh, both are called Asians in Acts 20, suggesting that Tychicus might have been from Ephesus or somewhere nearby in that Asia Minor region. 
And as Paul traveled throughout the known world, he kept traveling companions with him. He didn't travel solo. He had a team of brothers with him who would come alongside and and that he would even send out to check on many of the churches that he had planted. And Tychicus was one of those important workers. In fact, Tychicus was a frequent carrier of Paul's letters to the churches. There was no UPS in those days. And so if you wanted a letter delivered, you had to send it with someone to take it. And so there was no postage, no stamps. You had to rely on individuals to go. And Tychicus was one of those brothers delivering Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, 2 Timothy, and Titus were all carried to those churches by the hand of Tychicus. And as he brought those letters to those churches, he most likely relieved two two of Paul's companions from their posts of pastoring in that church. So Tychicus is sent to Ephesus with this letter, and he is to give a personal update on Paul's ministries. And look at what also the text says. Titus is to encourage the hearts of the congregation. He's to go with the letter and to encourage the congregation. While Paul is in chains, Tychicus is is not. And he is able to be an ambassador for Christ in a way that Paul can't be in that current season. And so Tychicus becomes a proxy for Paul's pastoral presence in the church of Ephesus. It was Tychicus who most likely would have read the letter of Ephesians to the church and he would have answered any questions that the congregation would have had about it. And so it's important to remember that in an era before airports and before Zoom calls, Tychicus played a vital role in strengthening the churches that Paul planted throughout his missionary journeys. So as we see it today played out in in the book of Acts, Paul's missionary strategy was to plant a church in a major urban hub in a particular area, trusting that as the church is established in that main city, that the gospel would begin to trickle out throughout the region as the church engages that area with the gospel over time. Indeed, that seems to be what happened with Paul's two-year ministry that he spent in Ephesus. And so though Paul was concerned with planting new churches to the very ends of the earth, he also designed his missionary trips to pass back through existing churches to help strengthen and encourage them. In addition, his whole letter ministry, his cohort of companions enabled him to hear reports and check in and respond to the issues that the churches were facing. So this is really important for us as we think about what does it mean to do the Great Commission? What does it mean to be gospel people, to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth? Because Paul didn't just plant churches. He labored to strengthen those churches to health. He he didn't just love the church where he was, but he loved the church of God and worked to strengthen it all across the world. So by this insight into Paul's ministry and to Tychicus, we, we learn that we too, as Redemption Church, should love other local churches, not just our own. The kingdom of God is much bigger, much bigger than Redemption Church. And though we rightly prioritize our time and our attention on our local family, we should also invest ourselves in encouraging other saints and other congregations. As the Lord blesses our church, We want to be found in a strategic place where we can steward our resources of time and money and 
people to do spiritual good in other congregations. So Paul and Tychicus, I think, model three ways that we can encourage the hearts of other churches. The first one is that we pray for other churches. Second, we partner with other churches. And three, we provide for other churches. Let me talk about each one of those. First, we pray for other churches. We have seen Paul model this throughout all of his letters, certainly the letter to the Ephesians. He prays two specific prayers for the church of Ephesus in this letter. Do you remember where they are? First is uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It's his first prayer for the Ephesians. And then chapter 3, verse 14 through 21 is the second prayer for the Ephesians. And Paul's letters are often filled with prayers and intercession for the church he's writing to. So thus, practical application here, we should make it a regular practice to pray for other churches. As elders, we try to model this for you in our pastoral prayer, where we make it a weekly habit of praying for God to bless other churches in our city, in our area, indeed all around the world. And we don't just restrict our prayers to just Baptist congregations, but we pray for all churches that believe and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for other congregations. And as we do so, it teaches us that other churches are not our competition, but they are partners in the work of the Great Commission. If we genuinely care about the lost souls of Wilson, of Eastern North Carolina, then we're going to labor in prayer to see more churches begun, more pastors raised, more Christians engaged in evangelism, and more churches growing healthier and more robust in the sound doctrine of the gospel. And so we pray, and we pray to the Lord that he might do such a work in our region and around the world. But secondly, we also partner with other churches. We partner with other churches. I always chuckle a little bit when I hear a church, even on its sign or even just talking with a pastor, when they refer to themselves as an independent Baptist church. And I chuckle because an independent Baptist church is redundant. Every Baptist church, including redemption, is independent, autonomous, self-governing under the lordship of Christ. But by inserting that word independent, it can communicate a self-reliance, a disinterestedness in cooperation, and, and an isolation from other churches. All Baptist churches are independent in their governance, but must be dependent on one another as they cooperate in obeying the task of the Great Commission. So we're independent in our governance, but we're dependent on one another as we cooperate together for this gospel work in our communities. So, so every church should seek to know and serve other congregations, other churches. We must not relationally wall ourselves off from other churches. Instead, we should work and strive to develop intimate friendship and, and, and intimacy with other churches so that we might know what their needs are, so that we might hear what their struggles may be, and that we can encourage them in their work. So we have to recognize that, that neighboring churches are partners in the one mission. We must seek to serve them as members of God's family, and we should seek to every opportunity we can to work together in healthy ways for the Great Commission. 
Now, as elders, we have led Redemption Church, an independent church, right, to cooperate together with the Southern Baptist Convention, a convention of 40,000 churches all across our country. And why do we do that? Well, it's because by pulling our resources together and partnering with the convention through what's called the cooperative program, we can expand the efforts of any one local church to support missionaries all across the world, to support mission boards and, and church planting and seminaries. If you're a member and you're here tonight when voting on the budget, you'll notice that 6% of every dollar we receive, we give to something called the cooperative program. Why is that? And what is that for? Well, this funds all the wonderful ministries of our convention, our seminaries, our mission boards, our missionaries. And we found a strategic partnership in doing so with the Southern Baptist Convention. But we've also chosen to partner with the Pillar Network. This is a way that we can partner with other like-minded churches to plant and revitalize churches all around the world. The, the Pillar Network is broken up into regions of churches to help facilitate this sort of friendship and partnership that we're talking about here from Ephesians 6. And so I have the privilege of leading the Eastern North Carolina region for Pillar and helping and gathering a group of local pastors that meet every month as we pray for one another, as we encourage one another in the work of ministry. But we also get together, not just to encourage and pray for one another, but also to partner together for how we can plant churches together and how we can see the gospel advance in other congregations. So similarly, we have thought it strategic to also join our local Baptist association, the South Roanoke Baptist Association. And why do we do that? Well, because we want to get to know other pastors and churches to serve them and strengthen them. We want to follow Paul's example and invest our time, our energy, even our money to encourage other churches, to encourage gospel work. And we want to give the time necessary to cultivate relationship and trust so that we can partner together for the gospel. One of the ways we can encourage other churches is by sending our own Tychicus to visit and encourage other congregations. So every time I get together with other pastors, as I did just this past Friday in Bunn, North Carolina at Sisters Cafe, right? I, I do so as an extension of your hands, as your tychicus, as your hands and feet through the support of your ministry to encourage others. Every time Pastor Josue hops on a WhatsApp video chat, apparently that's what they use overseas, right? WhatsApp. And every time he jumps on one of those video calls with a pastor from Brazil speaking Portuguese and praying for other pastors, he does so as your tychicus, investing and encouraging other pastors and other congregations. There are, there are countless ways that we can partner with other churches. We can send out our preachers. The Lord has blessed us with so many young men competent in teaching the word. And we can send them out to teach at a nearby congregation without a pastor and in need. We can send a few of our elders overseas to, to meet with and encourage other missionaries and pastors. And by God's grace, we want to be as generous as we can in investing in other congregations for their spiritual good in Christ. And Lord willing, the Lord will allow us to not only just partner with other churches, but also to send to other churches, to send to other churches. And that leads to that third point right there, provide for other churches. Paul's sending of Tychicus 
was costly to him. As Tychicus goes to Ephesus, he's not just simply meeting for a quick lunch meeting, nor is he just hopping on an hour-long Zoom call. He's sending Tychicus for a multi-year commitment to the church of Ephesus. Tychicus was a faithful brother. He was a companion to Paul. He was an encourager to Paul in his missionary work. But yet Paul sends this faithful brother, Tychicus, to Ephesus because he recognizes that the church in Asia needs him more. As the ministry of the word does its work among us at Redemption Church, the spirit of God will use that word to raise godly and mature men and women among us. That's what the word of God does is it's taught and as we cherish it and as we learn from it. And so we have seen God do just that at Redemption Church over these last four and a half years. And the time will soon come when we must send our elders and members to perhaps in a long-term capacity serve other congregations, whether it be through church planting, whether it be through starting a new church, whether maybe it's aiding a struggling church, maybe it's sending a pastor to a church that needs one, who knows what that might look like. But we must joyously prepare ourselves to send out our best for the kingdom of God. We cannot, we cannot be selfish. We cannot hoard the resources that the Lord has provided us but we must generously send and provide those we love to go and serve the larger kingdom of God in other churches. But the kingdom of God will advance not by a single church growing massive in size, but by a multiplication of many healthy churches. And if we long for the Lord to do this work, if we long to see the world changed by the gospel, then we have to prepare ourselves to send our own members as missionaries, as church planters, as lay elders, as members of new congregations. Perhaps the Lord, in your time at Redemption Church, is preparing you to go as a Tychicus, to go and be an encouragement one day to other believers in the work of the gospel. So just a practical application of what does this mean for you this morning as we try to partner with other churches, it means that you should be taking your discipleship here really seriously. That you should be gladly sitting under the word. That you should be seeking to grow and help others grow. Take your discipleships here seriously. Grow and flourish under the ministry of the word because you are being prepared, should the Lord call you, to be transplanted out of this congregation to go love and serve other churches. So take your preparation, take your discipleship here seriously. Who knows where the Lord may call you, but we must all be prepared to be sent to go. But secondly, not only do we love other churches, we also love one another. We love one another. We see this in verse 23. Verses 23 through 24, Paul moves to his final greeting to the church. And it was customary for ancient letters of the first century to include a, a parting wish, if you will. It was often a worldly, secular blessing in the name of the pagan gods. But like his opening, Paul infuses these conventional forms in the ancient world. He infuses them with the gospel. And here, Paul begins to assemble some common Christian terms that we hear all the time. Peace, love, faith, and grace. So we can read these words a little flippantly. 
melding them together in some sort of generic Christian goodbye. But that's not what Paul does. Paul gives his final words to the Ephesians, and he does so. He arranges these terms with great care and intention, not just as a way of concluding his letter, but also summarizing the letter's contents. Love is the dominant theme in these concluding words. And in verse 23, he stresses the love we ought to have for brothers and sisters in the church. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, if you remember the opening of Ephesians, Paul's sort of calling back to that opening greeting where he said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul bookends this letter to the Ephesians at the opening and conclusion with this theme that recurs throughout the letter, that God has brought peace. He's brought peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, as we've seen in Ephesians, is an achievement of God's supernatural grace. It is the evidence of his saving power among us. So particularly in Ephesians 2, we remember Christ is called our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. We read that Christ creates in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Christ goes, in Ephesians 2.17, he goes and preaches peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. As God's children, walking worthy in the gospel, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And against the schemes of the devil, we are to put on the shoes of gospel readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so it is that we, by God's grace, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by his blood, we are reconciled to God, and we are also reconciled to one another. Peace among brothers and sisters in a local church, it is the testimony of God's saving power. It's the evidence of it. And so Paul prays that this peace, which comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, that it would be experienced in practice in the church of Ephesus. And this peace is accompanied by love with faith, Paul says. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ brings with it a love for the brothers and sisters. The power of the gospel that we believe in is shown to the world by our love for one another. Those who have peace with God, who labor in love to live together in communities of peace, and they're called local churches. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me urge you, church, to live out our covenant commitment to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You know, we live in such a divided world, don't we? Divided by politics divided by ethnicity, divided by economic class, divided by education level and choices, divided by nationality. You see, the the cracks of division seem to fracture with each passing week. But even the church can find herself, if she's not careful, rebuilding walls of division that the Lord Jesus has torn down. And it is within our church that we are to provide a contrasting community of peace, an alternative city, a new kingdom, marked not by fractured division, but by peace that Christ has achieved by his death. 
Church, love one another. And may the peace of God evident among us, may it, may it entice and allure the watching world as they say, see how they love one another. And the peace of God that's birthed by the gospel, expressed in love with faith, it ought to define our fellowship together as Redemption Church. So let me ask you, how is your love of the brothers and sisters this morning? You can't love people you don't know. One of the ways that you can love your brothers and sisters and the church is by regularly praying with them and striving to get to know them. Your active involvement and participation in the life of the church as a member is essential, not because God expects it of you, which he does, but it's a prerequisite for you to be able to love the brothers and sisters. Arriving late and coming out as soon as Chris says, go with the gospel, will not give you the opportunity to love others well. Grab members, talk with them, schedule lunches and coffees during the week, invite them into your home, stay late and talk after church, be consistent in attending your community group, work your schedule and center your life around knowing others in this body so that you can love them well. When, when a need arises in the congregation, the members of the household of God should be quick to meet it. We must bear each other's burdens. We must rejoice with each other's joys. We must live openly and transparently before one another because we recognize there is a gift of God in having one another as fellow covenant members. It means that we have to see one another and acknowledge that, that, that I am a gift to you even as you are a gift to me. With each member investing their time and their energy and their attention and building up one another, the church, Paul says, is built up in love. And so we pray for each other. We serve one another. We encourage one another. We correct one another. We disciple one another. And as we do that, church, the peace and love of Christ will mark us as his people. But I'll also suggest that you cannot love those you aren't committed to. Covenant membership is a voluntary commitment to loving, serving, and discipling others in the church. So I'll suggest to you that if you're not a member of a local church, it will be difficult, if not nigh impossible, for you to actually love others well. After all, how can you love someone if you refuse to be bound to them in any way? If you're not a member here, let me encourage you to consider signing up for our next membership class in January. And if you know the love of Jesus, which I pray you do, that love will overflow in love for his people. So join yourself then voluntarily and gladly with other brothers and sisters so that the peace and love of Jesus can be known and displayed in our community. But thirdly, and finally, we love other churches, we love one another, but we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Jesus. In the final verse of Ephesians, we see that call so clearly. Paul says, verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. God's grace is with those who love his son with a love incorruptible. But why should we love Jesus? Maybe that's a question we should ask. We shouldn't assume. Why, why, why should we love Jesus? The whole letter of Ephesians has provided all the reasons <laughs> for why we should love Jesus. We love Jesus because he saved us from our sins. 
according to the purpose of God's will, Christ redeemed us through his blood. He forgives us our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He lavishes us with all wisdom and insight. Jesus is the one who achieves his father's eternal plan to love his church. And as we are united to Jesus by faith, we experience the joys of every spiritual blessing that God lavishes on us. Without Jesus, we would have no salvation. We would have no blessing. We would have no redemption. And yet, while we were children of wrath, dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. So through Jesus, we receive the riches of God's grace through faith. All of it is a gift. And we love Jesus, if you need another reason, we love Jesus because he unites us together. He unites us together while we were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, the Lord Jesus brings you and I near by his blood. He brings peace between Jew and Gentile. He overcomes animosity and factions and divisions, and he creates one new humanity in the place of the two called his church. And the Lord Jesus is joining us together upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself being our cornerstone. And in Jesus, we are being built together, right? Into this holy temple, this sacred community, a beloved church where the spirit of God dwells within. And thus Christ has made us one body in him. We love because Jesus makes us holy. We love because Jesus makes us holy. As we are joined to Christ by faith, The gospel is at work in us by the power of the spirit to strengthen us in our inner being. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith that we may be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love, a a love that surpasses knowledge. And according to the power at work within us, we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. We have a new life in Christ. We have a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then we can live distinctly from the world, forsaking our former sins. And we can walk as children of the light, taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And in our holiness, Christ has promised ultimate victory as he strengthens us with the whole armor of God that we might withstand the devil's schemes. We love Jesus because he is the one exalted over all. According to God's purpose, set forth in Christ, all things will be united in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus has risen from the grave and sits at his father's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. All things has been put under his feet and he is head over all things to the church. And according to the mysterious plan of the gospel, this plan that has now been revealed in Christ, he places his church before all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places as we, his church, showcase the manifold wisdom of God in the cosmos. And through us, we display to heaven and earth the power and grace and mercy and goodness of Jesus, showing the supremacy of Christ above all and over all. 
And because of all these realities, we love Jesus. We love him. It may sound quite too simple and too quaint and perhaps a little cliche, but how should we respond to the gospel? How should we respond? After spending almost a year studying this letter to the Ephesians, what should our one response be? We love Jesus. We love him. One of the most influential theologians of the 20th century fielded a time of Q&A from students at a top-tier university. And one of those students posed the question, Professor, you've written extensively about every aspect of theology and church history that one can think of. Can you sum it all up in a sentence or two? And the room sort of fell in this awkward silence, thinking, what a dumb question to ask this guy, right? This is a prestigious scholar, one of the most influential scholars in theology of this century. But the professor took the question seriously. And he thought about it a moment and pondered his answer a while. The room fell silent. You can hear sort of grumbling among the people, expressing a bit of an irritable ire that someone would ask this brilliant scholar such a silly question. But the professor responded simply and succinctly, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see, while Ephesians expounds lofty theology, grand doctrines, one year is not enough time to, to understand all the riches that this book contains. But we cannot overlook the simple truth at the heart of the matter. Jesus loves you. And by his grace, we can love him too. Of course, we worship Jesus. We serve Jesus. We submit to Jesus. We honor Jesus. We glorify Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We live for church Jesus. But church, do we love Jesus? Do we love him? Do we cherish him? As we think of him and all that he's done for us, do our hearts swell with grateful love? Do tears of love come to your eyes as we think of him, as we worship him? Do the affections of your heart churn in love for Jesus as you think of the gospel? Does your heart just well up to sing, oh, how I love Jesus? And church, may we love Jesus with love incorruptible. Love incorruptible. The word here for incorruptible can be translated as immortal. Sometimes it's translated as undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. The word communicates three things. It communicates purity, intensity, and duration of our love. In purity, we are to love Jesus without corruption. We don't let our love for the world taint, diminish, or distract us from loving Jesus. In intensity, our love for Jesus ought to grow stronger and be rooted deeper in our hearts as we grow and mature in Christ. And then thirdly, in duration, our love for Jesus is unceasing, always persevering, eternal. So do you love Jesus this morning? The gospel is the good news of God's love for sinners as he saves us through Christ. So listen carefully. You cannot love other churches. You cannot love other believers. And you cannot love Jesus until he first loves you. And John tells us, we love because he first loved us. And Jesus has loved us. As he has laid down his life for us on the cross, taking our sin and condemnation on his shoulders, 
And on the third day, triumphing over sin and death, giving us forgiveness of sin and everlasting hope in eternal life. So if you do not know the love of Christ this morning, I implore you to turn from your sin, to put your faith in Jesus this morning, turn to Christ and experience a love that is unlike anything in this world. And as you experience the love of his salvation, his forgiveness, his righteousness, you will find that your heart by the spirit of God will begin to overflow with love to Jesus and love that will cascade as you love his people in the church and will spread even further to churches all around the world. Church, may our love for Jesus follow that same trajectory. Do you see it as evidence in your life? As we love Jesus with incorruptible love, may we love our fellow brothers and sisters as we walk in covenant together in a local church. And as we love one another, may that love overflow as we work together to encourage other churches in the gospel, even sending out our own Tychicus to to serve, to strengthen, to love other churches. See, the Christian life is one of abounding love. And it all starts because Jesus first loved us. And as we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.